So tonight I'll be talking about non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. Last week, having spoken about greed, hatred, and delusion, I'm feeling like tonight I get to talk about the good things. <laughs> um, and you know, just in saying that, I was reflecting on how you know Buddhism can get a bad rap. You know that some sometimes Buddhist teachings gets translated as life is suffering. And it was so contrary to the message of the Buddha that you know, he spoke about the end of suffering. And he also really gave guidelines what we can turn our minds towards that plant seeds that are wholesome, that are beneficial, that will be conducive to awakening. And you know, when we start to do that, we find there's a lot of joy in the path. It really starts to gladden the mind. We sit more upright, um, have a greater sense of living in harmony. And so, you know, last week, having spoken about greed, hatred, and delusion, and knowing how painful and difficult it can be to look at that which is unwholesome, I hope that tonight, in looking at that which is wholesome, that which gladdens the mind, that you get a sense of balance. That yes, we do need to look into ways in our lives that we're acting, uh, states of mind in ourselves that we're feeding, that create pain, create suffering. But equally so, we can turn our attention towards that which is beneficial. So non-greed, you know, we're not greedy for anything. If over the course of this last week you've played around or you know, observed desire, being able to see how it is agitating, how it doesn't hold that promise of happiness, how it can be very painful, the state of wanting, then to know the moments where greed isn't present. The ease that comes with that, where the mind is not clinging, where it's not grasping or adhering to whatever arises in our experience. There's a great coolness to it. And non-greed in Buddhist teachings is not just there being a lack of greed or an absence of greed, but there is actually positive forces. We find non-greed manifests as generosity. It manifests as renunciation, that capacity to let go. So I'd like to speak a little bit about how non-greed manifests by way of dana and renunciation. <clears throat> dana itself, or generosity, is one of the most basic human virtues and is very <clears throat> excuse me. It's very important on the spiritual journey. 
Buddha always began by giving teachings of dana or generosity to lay people. He once said, If beings knew, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would the stain of miserliness overcome their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared, if there were someone to receive their gift. But because beings do not know, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they eat without having given. The stain of miserliness overcomes their minds. It's quite likely that we don't know the power of generosity, that we're not so familiar with it, because part of our cultural upbringing is that of getting, accumulating, rather than giving away. Our social status may be defined by it. In our lives, we can go on gathering and collecting, rather than letting go and relinquishing. I find it interesting to reflect on why the Buddha may have given this as the first teaching. And when I look at it, I see that in a moment of generosity, there is this quality of letting go that we hear about so often in practice. No, whatever arises, letting go or letting be, relinquishing. And when we sit in practice and we're being with mind states, you know, sometimes they're very subtle, to have a sense of letting go can sometimes be so subtle that it's not very tangible. And yet, in our lives, when we practice generosity, when we give something to someone else, there is a very tangible feeling to it. One can feel, even physically, you know, having something in the hand and letting go. And, you know, with that, there can be uh, just a great generosity, a benevolence of heart. There is the mind of non-clinging, and it's much more tangible. And so I think it helps us to see what happens when we let go. We find with this quality of dana or generosity, it also helps to take us out of a self-cherishing framework where we're caring for our own needs. In moments of generosity, we're abandoning aversion and ill will and this desire to hold on. So it seems like a place we can actively practice letting go and come to know of some of its benefits. We find that through acts of generosity, the mind will become more pliable, less fixated. And this, in turn, helps to dispel delusion. We find if we reflect on moments of generosity, it can really help to gladden the mind. And the Buddha encouraged people to do this to reflect on times in your life when you've been generous. 
I think, you know, for me, um, reflecting on generosity and, and the benefit of it, one way is to reflect on a moment when someone offered you a gift. What was the effect of it? I know there's been times in my own life when I've been profoundly touched when someone has offered me a gift. You know, and it can be a very simple gift. But just that, that person reaching out, that person caring in some way. And, you know, sometimes the gifts come at unexpected moments. And, you know, you could be in the midst of a lot of misery, self-pity, and then somebody offers something to you. What happens in the mind? You know, even for a moment, the heart is profoundly touched, gladdened. And then looking in our own lives at moments when we've offered something, the joy that was in the heart, you know, just that that feeling of benevolence, of caring, and just giving. It really is a way that we can make a practice of non-greed. You know, and by it really is a practice because it isn't that every time we give we're going to feel that great benevolence of heart. You know, I've watched in my own life where, you know, at times it's been so hard to give. And maybe there was just the intention to give and then the resistance came and there was no possibility to give. Or sometimes in a moment of giving and feeling really good and then fear jumps in and it's like, oh no, I won't have enough. It can be any number of experiences. But when we make it a practice, it's like highlighting it in our experience, knowing that this is actually one of the things that the Buddha said can plant wholesome seeds, that we can have the intention to be generous in our lives. And then to just bring mindfulness in, see what happens, see where we get caught, see where it's hard, see where we can give, and what that feels like. Of course, the retreat setting is a unique environment to practice generosity. It's not going to be so beneficial if we all start leaving chocolates on everybody's seat or if we're you know, obsessed with the desire to walk into town to buy gifts for everybody. Um, but there is ways that we still are generous as we practice here. We give each other the gift of silence. We give each other the space to go through our own process. You know, so many times in our lives we might see somebody crying and immediately want to fix it. And yet here, we might see somebody crying and just gently hold them in our hearts, giving them the space to touch into whatever it is in their process they need to go through. We give the gift of presence, what it is to be present, the wisdom that can arise from being present. The Buddha said, the greatest gift of all is the gift of the Dhamma. And as we practice, the Dhamma becomes realized. 
And this can be our gift to the world, the highest offering. Albert Camus says, real generosity toward the future consists in giving all to what is present. We can give wholeheartedly to our practice. So dana, or generosity, that which is based in letting go, non-clinging, it is an expression of non-greed. Renunciation is also an expression of non-greed. It's a quality of heart and mind that, when cultivated, inclines the mind towards liberation. And when brought to perfection, it is an expression of the awakened mind. Renunciation is helpful as we begin the journey because it helps us to let go of that which is not serving us. This clears the way for wisdom to unfold. We will then later discover that renunciation is a fruit of our practice. It's the expression of wisdom when we're no longer bound by the habituated state of desire. For many of us, renunciation may not feel like a natural expression. We might consider renunciation quite undesirable. It's like where we're going to let go of everything we'd really like to have. And it can feel you know, very binding, um, forced. Uh, it can... It, it kind of, once again, can go against a cultural grain. And that, you know, living in America, the Constitution is based upon freedom of rights. And oftentimes we associate that freedom with being able to have whatever we want when we want it, and really based upon desire. And you know, so when the thought of relinquishing, letting go, um, may seem contrary to that. But the Buddha said that it was helpful in the understanding of the power of renunciation to reflect on both the drawback of sense pleasure and what happens when we get caught up in sense pleasure. And, you know, as I spoke about last week in in looking at the wanting mind, you know, just to see the impact of being caught up in that which is pleasurable and how really it's dissatisfying. But you know, that needing to be examined in our own experience, understood in our own experience. But so we can, you know, if we pay attention with mindfulness, we begin to see the pitfalls of that. Um, and the Buddha also said to contemplate the rewards of renunciation. And that is, you know, both of these we can really do on retreat. You know, we have had plenty of opportunity to look at the wanting mind, but also just sometimes to reflect on how sitting here in an environment 
that is, you know, much simpler usually than what our daily lives are, the effect of that, how it, you know, really gives the mind a container in which to work, you know, in to really be able to see the movements of the mind. Because, you know, often in our lives, when we have so many choices, we don't even see what fuels the desire to do this and not to do this. You know, it's just all happening so quickly, we don't see what's underlying it. But when our environment is simplified, we can really look and see what's happening in the mind. And then when we're not, you know, making so many choices about what to do, what to have, where to be, um, when things are much simpler, we also find a lot more energy comes. That, you know, maybe in your first couple of days here, you were tired, you came in tired, and then after a certain period of time, it can happen, doesn't always happen, more energy becomes available. Um, And we begin to see this, you know, that we might find that we don't need to uh, go to bed so early or we can get up a little bit earlier. We maybe in the beginning needed to have a nap and maybe we don't need to have a nap. That just, there comes a lot more energy. And, you know, if we really take this into our lives and looking at simplifying our lives at home, we also find in doing so that it gives us the energy to do that which seems valuable, useful, you know, to really focus on what is of value in our lives rather than just dispersing this energy. As we're sitting here, we can also notice the moments when renunciation happens with ease and what that feels like. You know, when some desire arises in the mind and we just simply let go. Really letting yourself feel that. You know, because it's 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 so uncomplicated. It's so easeful. You know, and we, we notice the difference when, you know, that something arises in the mind and we latch on to it. The pain of that, that's the drawback. The reward, the ease. So even, you know, it can be very momentary, this seeing the drawback of sense pleasure and the reward of renunciation. It's really immediate in our experience here. And renunciation really is guiding us towards letting go of that which no longer serves us. And as we bring in mindfulness, it isn't a burden to practice renunciation. It becomes a joy. There was a time in my own life where I had a very busy life. I had, in my job was full on. I had a busy social schedule. Um, I was very physically active. And then I became really inspired around practice. And so there was this really full life and this desire to practice. And, you know, kind of looking at the meshing of the two of them to do formal practice. And, um, it looked like, wow, how does one do that? And yet 
I found that in the beginning there needed to be, you know, making a bit of time for formal practice. But the more I did that, the more clear it became in my life what was no longer serving me. And things just naturally fell away, and there very easily became more space for formal practice. So I'd like to suggest that rather than viewing renunciation as a forceful event based upon our ideals or what we think we should be um, letting go of or what we should be doing, instead looking at it from the way of looking at what helps, what gives support to the unfolding of our hearts. And in this way, it's based in wisdom and not aversion. We find that renunciation is really the relinquishing of craving, renouncing our suffering, that which binds our hearts. We can work with it on three levels. The outer world, that of sense desires, pleasurable sights, sounds. Uh, We can look at it by way of simplifying our life or making deliberate deliberate efforts in how we work with material wealth. We can work with renunciation on the inner level where we abandon that which is unwholesome, that which is painful, abandoning fantasies, imaginations that we have as we're sitting. Just seeing as they arise something that's really pleasant, can we practice renunciation? simply let go, come back. The third level of renunciation is the ultimate level where we are abandoning the concept of there being I, me, or mine, the false view of a small separate self. So non-greed where there's not this quality of wanting, desire, where the expression can be through generosity and renunciation. Non-hatred is where there's no aversion, ill will. I don't know why, some, sometimes I just <laughs> marvel at what the mind that had completely eradicated non-hatred must be like. I don't know if it's because of all the aversion I sometimes feel, but just to think of being free of this state of aversion. And, you know, there is probably many moments in our lives now that we experience this. No, non Hatred is the basis of loving-kindness, compassion, patience, forgiveness. With non-hatred, 
there's gentleness, friendliness. It's where there's deep care and respect for life. So when we're met with something that's unpleasant, rather than trying to annihilate it, the heart opens with compassion. Non-hatred gets expressed through our conduct, through the virtuous heart, an active way of cultivating or turning the mind towards this quality is through the living of the precepts. The five precepts, or eight precepts if you're taking them, are said to be the natural conduct of noble morality of someone who is awakened. That the awakened mind naturally cares is considerate, is compassionate, is loving. The virtuous heart is when we have lived well and in harmony with life. It's where our essential goodness shines forth. The heart is naturally radiant and pure. I'm sure we can all understand the value of virtue when we just recall something that we did in the past that we didn't feel right about and the weight that that carries. How it may have come back to us over and over again. And then the difference between when we have done something that was helpful wholesome, beneficial to others. The lightness of mind that comes. In our lives, when we take the precepts to heart and really bring them into the realm of practice, we learn to live in a way that creates harmony, that creates safety, where there is this expression of caring. You know, these precepts are, in some ways, very basic. And yet, when we turn and look at them, they're not always so black and white. And so, in our lives, it can be helpful to really pay attention to whether our words and actions are in alignment with the precepts. That, you know, the words that we speak are truthful, helpful, and appropriate. That what we do is based in non-harming. that we take care, that we don't take what doesn't belong to us. 
and that we act wisely with our sexual energy. And that we don't be, um, indulge in intoxicants that lead us into heedlessness. That we take care. That we protect our mindfulness. They seem simple, and yet they're a very rich area of exploration. When we work with the precepts, it's really helpful to pay attention to our motivations. What's motivating us in our actions? If we can catch our motivation, it can be right there whether we see whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, helpful or unhelpful. In working with the precepts, we also have to work with the times when we may have transgressed and done something wrong against a precept and have the capacity to forgive. having to look at our intention, our motivation, to see that it really moves out into our lives. That our practice is not just limited to the work that we do on the cushion, but that we work towards cultivating this non-hatred by having a deep sense of caring in our hearts. As we do so, we find that people become more at ease around us. They feel safe. We find in our own minds that we don't fall prey to states of worry, guilt, and regret. We don't need to keep armoring or defending ourselves. We're planting wholesome seeds through our words, and actions. His Holiness the Dalai Lama once said, once you have pure and sincere motivation, all the rest follows. You can develop this right attitude towards others on the basis of kindness, love, and respect and on the clear realization of the oneness of all human beings. This is important because others benefit by this motivation as much as, as much as anything we do. Then with a pure heart, you can carry on any work, and your profession becomes a real instrument to help the community. Through our practice, we see for ourselves the deep interconnectedness. As we do so, this will strengthen our capacity to uphold the precepts, where it becomes impossible to harm another because there is no other. So non-hatred, where the mind is not aversive, not filled with ill will, 
but has within it the qualities of loving-kindness, compassion, forgiveness. And the last being that of non-delusion. It says, where there's wisdom, we're able to see into the true nature of things. The darkness has been dispelled. We bring the light of awareness into our minds. The practice that we're doing here is a wisdom practice. It is to help support non-delusion. The wisdom that we gain is not an intellectual understanding, but is the removal of ignorance through clear seeing. Clearly seeing the way of things. Now needing a steadiness of mind to do so, because there's so many views, beliefs, opinions, there's so much coloration that we often give to our experience, we give to life. There's so many filters through which we're seeing things and not even aware of it. To me, that's something that can almost be scary at times, is that we don't even know that we're not seeing clearly. And I think that that's why, um, you know, some teachers say there's just no end to the unfolding of wisdom. Because we just keep looking, keep seeing. And any veil of delusion, um, the many veils of delusion getting dispelled, it brings us into a direct and immediate relationship to life that's non-reactive and completely responsive. Without the clear seeing, our responsiveness to life is conditioned by our habits, our patterns. But when clear seeing comes in, we, we really begin to see these habits. We begin to see the misperceptions and we begin to see life as it is. <clears throat> Probably all of us have had moments in our practice where it's just been a glimmer of seeing something new in a fresh way that isn't bound by our views, opinions, beliefs. And they're very simple moments that we have. You know, in the beginning of practice, as you sat, there may have been pain in your knee. And there was really the concept of pain and the concept of knee. And my knee hurts. But when we keep being mindful of our experience, it can take us to a level where what we're experiencing, what, what's being experienced, is simply heat, tingling, vibration, tightness. And, you know, it's conditions that keep changing all the time. 
and conditions that are in relationship to other conditions. We see that what's happening is not so personal, is not, doesn't belong to us, we don't have control over it. And that when we really accept that things are continually changing and there's no grasping, we're not trying to make permanent that which by its very nature is impermanent, we start to experience the ease and the peace of the mind of non-clinging. So moments when things are really simple, where it doesn't covered with a lot of overlay in our experience, in a moment of hearing, just hearing, in a moment of seeing, just seeing, in a moment of touching, just touching. I remember the first long retreat that I did and I spent a lot of time working with greed, hatred, and delusion, and not non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. And you know, at times it felt like a battle and hard work. And then there would be just a moment of hearing, or just a moment of touching. And it was so simple. It was no big deal. And yet, total sense as if I'd been in the jungle and suddenly stepped out into clearing. There was a great spaciousness. When we really pay attention in our practice, when mindfulness starts to gain momentum, we find that insight arises. Insight into the three characteristics of experience, seeing of the changing nature of experience, seeing of how there's no lasting happiness to be found in this changing experience, and that it's just impersonal insubstantial conditions, continually changing. This is what helps to uproot the greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. We find that we move from a way of life, of wanting things to be a certain way, thinking we need certain things, to be at peace and at ease with the way things are. It seems as human beings, we have a great blessing. We can develop 
the faculty of wisdom. We don't have to simply live trapped in the way things are unfolding. But we can gain an understanding that is at ease, at peace with this. Animals often seem very caught in survival, don't have possibly the opportunity that we have here to look and to see into the workings of this heart and mind. It seems like a rare and precious opportunity. So non-delusion, seeing clearly into the nature of things without our usual filters. Seeing in this way leads to the liberation of the heart, sets us free. So non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. These are all wholesome seeds that we can plant. Seeds that bear fruit that is helpful, useful, skillful. Fruit that can lead to awakening or the conditions for awakening. When I hear talks about greed, hatred, delusion, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, I just have this image of life being this garden that we can plant. And if we pay attention, we have a choice. We have a choice in what we plant. We may have bad habits from the past that we will reap the fruits of. But if we don't react, if we don't just move into further unskillful, unhelpful actions, in that moment, the karma can change. When our responsiveness comes from non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Last week I shared a quote where the Buddha talked about abandoning that which is unwholesome. In speaking about that which is wholesome, he said, Cultivate what is wholesome, O monks. One can cultivate the wholesome, O monks. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If, if this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate the wholesome.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.